and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Harrison Ward, better known on Instagram as The Fell Foodie. Here's a cook who recreates restaurant quality meals outdoors and has even appeared on TV with Dame Mary Berry. His life was very different before he gave up alcohol when he was drinking up to 20 pints a day. And Harrison is now over seven years sober and he really is living his best life, including just launching his new debut cookbook called Cookout. And I already have a copy of it and it really is brilliant. Speaking of books, my own one for the road is now out on audio. So head over to Amazon now and download it today. Good morning, Harrison. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. It's so lovely to have you on, especially if I've just come back from Nepal. And um, we met um, in Cliverow, didn't we, when you did something for Be Sober. I was up there uh, speaking at the event and, and you turned up with your kit and your recipes and cooked in the most beautiful meal on a little gas stove in the middle of the room and it's like wow this is fantastic um so i'm really grateful that you've joined me today to tell us all your story uh how are you mate i'm very well thank you no likewise thank you for having me i suppose quite topical with you uh recently returning back from some bigger mountains as well that we've uh I know, I know. You go up the mountains in the UK, but I had to go and do one better than you, didn't I? <laughs> Absolutely. I think I've been better than one better. I mean, certainly one of the amazing achievements, sir. Thank you very much, mate. And that's two this year. Um, but I think it's time to get the deck chair out and the uh, hanky and sit on a beach in Canberra Sands or something to do something a little bit less strenuous. But anyway, I'm really grateful you've come on today. Uh, and I want to hear your story like everyone else. So let's do it as normal, start at the beginning, what it was like for you growing up, where you grew up and that, and go from there. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, there's nothing sort of untoward to unearth really in my childhood, I think. I mean, I've listened to some podcasts before of yours and different guests. I mean, sometimes this is where things really begin. But I think for myself, it was very much just quite a normal, loving childhood, really. I mean, uh, my parents were, were divorced or lived quite separate areas, but there was nothing there didn't really start anything but I was quite really a happy-go-lucky child enjoyed activity in the outdoors growing up just outside of Carlisle um, near the Lake District where I'm now based and really I was just someone I guess that was just yeah just just quite an extrovert sort of quite a people person went through my studies quite well and um yeah just sort of enjoyed that sort of that sort of growing up side of things really I mean I found myself quite quickly I worked quite a bit from quite a young age too in 13 I got myself a little job at the local pub and started doing a lot of pot washing and waiting on there and bits and I suppose kind of just to earn some pennies to go and do things you want to do as a as a young lad really but I enjoyed my sports quite a bit as well sort of football cricket hockey I played quite a bit of as well I was quite an active child 
So there really wasn't any signs of what was to come um, in the future, really, with that sort of point. Um, my dad was based down south. He was closer to sort of where you are. He was just outside um, London in the Basingstoke, sort of where Hampshire he was. So quite a journey from Cumbria to go back there. But again, good relationships there. Took us out camping quite a bit, a lot of caravanning as kids, heading out. So the outdoors did play a small part back then, but certainly not the impact that it has on my life this day. So it was very much just maybe some holidays over at the northeast and down to Devon by the beach. Like the places you're talking about, maybe relaxing. Yeah, they're good old memories, mate. And uh, I'm older than you, and I think the roadways are completely different. But when I was a kid, um, there was a famous A303 that you'd get stuck on for hours and hours and hours. And my dad made me this um, template thing that fit over my mum's seat, and it was a steering wheel uh welded to an aluminium plate that was molded around the top of her seat and I could drive myself in the back of the car. And just good memories, you know, of getting down there and going into the caravan and getting the stunt kites out. And you know, I was similar to you. I didn't really have anything in my childhood. My mum and dad didn't really drink. They they might take some homemade wine down there, but I never remember them being drunk or anything like that. It was when I got into my teens, I think, that uh, it changed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I can remember them sort of having a little bit of a drink and even allowing me to maybe enjoy a drink from time to time. Again, it was never a taboo. It was never something that was kind of like locked away in the cupboard and you couldn't see that until you were of age. I mean, it was quite sort of maybe a relaxed environment. So you had a little, little taste of things that my dad was maybe drinking when I went away and stuff. But for me, although I was working those environments, perhaps sort of before adolescence, going through into adulthood, it really wasn't until 18 that I really started to um, even even entertain, sort of, I suppose, the world of alcohol at that point. But, yeah, I did enjoy those sort of little adventures we went away on, though. It was kind of the, quite simple adventures, weren't they? I think that you did look forward to getting away from that. But it was it was a big sort of thing to go away on the weekend as well, I suppose, when you had all your time, just not knowing where you were heading to. And, again, seeing, obviously, my dad, who was based a bit further down south at the time. So it was a... Uh, yeah, happy memories for sure in the caravan. Mm, love it. So what changed when you was 18? Was it when you left school and you mixed with other people? Well, I think during this point um, through my adolescence, I guess going through puberty, I, I found myself really um, almost overnight being hit with with a different sort of mental side of things. So I found myself going from this quite, you know, um, exuberant, perhaps quite optimistic sort of person. All of a sudden I was really very self um deflated very dismissive very insecure and it was something that really I didn't really know what I was going through I had nothing really to compare myself to um didn't know there was nothing that changed overnight so it was kind of just something that well what's going on here and being that person that always wanted to I guess having a good time with other people I didn't want to bring anyone down with what I was going through so I didn't really speak to anyone at all about the uh, the issues I was now suffering from and it was something that quite quickly became the norm for me quite quickly became um something I was living with daily so from about sort of 13, 14 onwards, battling my own head to the point that really I was I was contemplating my own existence, sort of, you know, suicidal ideations, um, constantly putting myself down, you know, activities that before I'd have embraced without much um, resistance. All of a sudden now it's kind of just going out the front door to do things sometimes. You were constantly just beating yourself down for. So that was something that began to happen sort of 13, 14, that I didn't really see any help, I didn't speak out at all from during all those years. And of course, I mentioned I was working in the pub sort of early early doors. And as I got a bit older, I started waiting on the tables at sort of 15, 16, and then becoming sort of 18, then transitioning to behind the bar and working and sort of dispensing alcohol at that point. 
And I suppose then was something that things really began to change because I, I, I sort of came across people that perhaps I hadn't really met in my sort of childhood as much. I was um, socialising with different groups, very much enjoyed that aspect too, enjoyed that social crack, loved talking to people really. So again, likewise, hearing their stories and what was going on. But then in handing that, I guess, after the, after the shifts, people would maybe buy you a drink. It was all that coming of age type thing. Again, 18, being a bloke as well. It was kind of always, let's go out, let's go for a drink now, we can do. And quite quickly, I began to enjoy that sensation as sort of a social, I suppose a rite of passage as well. It was very much ingrained in the culture that it felt like that was a natural transition. And although I'd maybe been to the pub a little bit when I was sort of 16, 17, sneaking in there in the country pubs up sort of Cumbria way, it was quite easy to get, get away with those sort of things. But I was never someone that was down down the park, you know, a bottle of cider sort of thing. It just wasn't something I entertained at all. Um, but I enjoyed that sort of sensation that it gave me, I think. It kind of gave me a bit of an escape from my own head. I suppose at the early days, I mean, the tolerance, of course, was pretty dreadful. <laughs> so mm. Young adolescence, maybe a couple of pints and you were stumbling home and that was it. You were well on the way. But I quite quickly wanted more and more of that feeling because it was giving me that that freedom that I'd had sort of in my younger childhood that away from this this darker mind that I was sort of um, had succumbed to. So almost it began to sort of escalate from there, really. That's like taking more shifts in the pub, trying to get myself into that environment more and more. And I suppose under the guise of being social, quite quickly was quite regularly heading out most evenings um, to the local pub sort of in my early early adulthood. It's surprising how quickly it escalates as well. Like a lot of us that drink, we we overthink a million things, right? And it switches it off immediately. And it sounds to me like when you were 13, 14, you had all these new things coming into you and all these different thought patterns. And it does switch it off, doesn't it? And then your tolerance goes up and then it becomes part of your routine To It's a coping mechanism, isn't it? It certainly began that way. I think I didn't see it that way as much at the time. But as you say, quite quickly, it's becoming quite the norm. Everybody else in that environment, it's a normal practice. It's kind of, you know, you've just turned of age, going down the pub with the boys, meeting different groups in there, played a lot of football at the time too. So it was meeting on the weekend to go and watch the sports or as soon as you'd finished. So quite quickly, it became a major part of the routine. And I suppose I began taking a lot more shifts at the pub as well to sort of feed this lifestyle a bit more. I was someone that was very much well-known. If I wasn't working in the pub at this point, I was probably now in the pub at the time. So, um, But again, there was no real issues at the time, but I certainly saw it as something that was alleviating my own head at the time. I did see it as what I dubbed a bit as my medicine uh, already at this point, as tolerance began to build up. But there wasn't any signs, I don't think, at this point, for myself or even from the outside, that there was anything different to just a young lad discovering sort of alcohol and, and going on that sort of path, I guess, that sort of social lubricant, that Dutch courage that we all do. Um, but things really began to sort of change further, I guess, when I moved away to York uh, for university and um, moved away from home, I guess. So this is when things really began to escalate for me then. It's interesting you say that because when I was in my 20s, I, li- I lived a similar existence to you, right? I played for two football teams, so Saturday afternoon and Sunday mornings, and there was a completely different level to Sunday football uh, than Saturdays, right? But Saturdays, we used to finish the game and be straight in the pub. And quite often, we wouldn't go home straight after the game. We'd go all the way through, knowing we got a game in the morning. And then Sunday morning, we'd drag ourselves out of bed, play football, and then in the pub Sunday lunchtime. But I can really relate to what you say about I didn't really see it as a problem back then because everyone... In their twenties, and that, it's what we do, right? It's we don't. 
explore it or we didn't. I know a lot more people now are, but at the time it's like, yeah, we love it. We didn't look at the health harms of it and how it affects our anxiety and mental health. It was just what we did. Uh, and I think what happens is when you get a bit older, people start to move away. And when you realise you're not moving away from it, that's when it becomes a problem. Perhaps society a bit as well, isn't it? Because I'm sure when you were talking about the sort of football time back then, even the professionals at the time, it was what they did, wasn't it? It was almost the way they rehydrated. It was a few beers in the bath, off we go and continue on and celebrate into the night. And likewise, myself, I think, maybe just like the generation afterwards, it was kind of still the early infancy of the internet and stuff. And there wasn't people talking out perhaps about mental afflictions they'd gone through. There wasn't big role models from sporting worlds or um, sort of film stars and things talking about issues they'd had. Because that was now becoming sort of the path and the journey that I later discovered was the start of my battle with, with clinical depression, really. So there was an issue at the start there that, again, I was utilising and trying to alleviate with this substance, but didn't have any real role models to look look toward. But I suppose these days now that the next generation coming through is seeing a lot more maybe the health side of things. There isn't that maybe switch. And I suppose growing up in the countryside as well, it was definitely 20 years behind in the mindset at times. So it was kind of that's what you did straight away. It was down to the pub, maybe quite a bit of um, socialising that environment. But moving away to York, it was definitely somewhere that, once again, university, the first few weeks are all about meeting new people. And, of course, what's the the, the catalyst for that? It, mm. It's alcohol, once again. So it's all the freshers' week. It's all dubbed. It's all social lubrication. Drink, 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 drink. And I was already sort of a year older when I went to university. So I went back a year, a year back later into my studies. So I felt like I was quite an old head as well at the time. I hung around with a lot of the sort of the old boys in the pub. I liked their sort of crack a bit more. I wasn't going on the same sort of aspects. I wasn't down to clubbing. I liked sort of the old, the old man's boozers, sort of, sort of spilling into that lifestyle and building up into that routine. So when I went to university, it was all about going quick and fast and almost getting drunk as quick as possible, where I quite liked that slow social aspect to it, of going out in the daytime, having the crack, and it's gradually escalating into that night out. So I was generally going, I suppose, quite early doors, Moving away from the sort of the SU, the student union, I wasn't going what they call pre-drinking, where it was just down as much as you could at home first and going out and spending as little as possible in the pub. I enjoyed the fact of going out and being social because if I was stuck at home by myself, that's almost where the problems were for me because I was in my own head, stuck in my own walls. Yeah, I didn't drink at home at any point during this. I didn't drink at home in the later time either. It was always going out to do this, which of course was definitely more expensive. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it was an aspect that I. I felt was helping me more to go out there, but not realizing the fact that the slope I was slipping down um, until much later on. And did you get yourself a reputation pretty quickly of being the drinker, you know, like me, Glugs, like uh, people, you know, we, I championed it. It was like, that was my name, my reputation of being a drinker. And when I go into the pub, it's like, hey, Glugs is here. This, we're all getting drunk kind of thing. Absolutely. Well, it was like a badge of honour at the time, wasn't it? I suppose I was quite a big set bloke as it was. I suppose being a year old at the university, I mean, a year older there, could have, could, might as well have been 10 years older. You know, you were the sort of the granddad of the group almost. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was sort of world. But I mean, I used to joke now when my best mate was sort of with someone I drunk with at the very start. He was um, the son of the pub landlord at the pub I worked at 18. And he at the time was, I suppose, a bit more seasoned in the world. And it was almost a bit like the sort of Star Wars aspect of the master and the Padawan at the yeah. time and sort of taught the ways in a way but before long it was sort of you know I've created a monster here and you sort of uh, you caught up and then went beyond some but um I was certainly known for you know holding my drink it was something that 
you know, did quite regularly. And um, again, didn't see it as a problem. It was just someone that could put a lot away and hold a lot away. And again, maybe there was that sort of rugby culture in sort of that aspects too. And quite quickly, I found myself back in the pub trade too, because it felt like an environment that I felt quite safe in, quite enjoyed, and it fit my lifestyle. So I was more entertained the fact of going down to sort of the pubs um, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock when they opened with the crack there. The guys are watching the race in the pub in the, in the week, having a bit of crack with them. They'd all stumble home, maybe middle afternoon. I'd then meet the guys who were coming back from work. And they'd finish at five o'clock. They'd come out and I'd drink with them. And they'd maybe thought I'd had a couple of pints previous, but not realised I'd been out for you know, five, six hours already. And then they'd go home in the early afternoon. Then I'd be off with the sort of the students and the clubbers in the evening sort of things. It was just a constant path of moving on. And again, like the alcohol, it hadn't played a part much in my childhood. Again, I hadn't hadn't touched any cigarettes at the time either, but found myself picking up smoking, sort of a, um, maybe dabbled a little bit social smoking at 18, but moving away, buying my sort of first pack in a different environment. And again, working back in the hospitality trade, it was the way to almost get a break all the time. So not through peer pressure, but just almost just because it was the norm. So mm. all of a sudden now I'm regularly consuming quite heavy units most days of the week. I've taken up smoking and my health has definitely started to, to suffer a bit noticeably change but as you say you were wearing that badge of honor almost as the drinker and someone that they knew they'd meet out in the town later on and you know you'd still be standing at the end of the night sort of thing it was yeah again still not not any signs to myself at the time and perhaps because it was so normal as well through that transition into adulthood from adolescence there perhaps wasn't the science to anybody else other than the fact he's just a young lad having a good good time at the moment yeah i, I relate to that because i used to go in my pub um on a sunday at midday like I'd wait for the bolts to come down and they'd open it up and there'd be the peanuts and the roast potatoes on the bar and I would sit there and I would do the whole shift, like literally from mid midday to the last bell. And I really relate to you saying when the different people come in, their shifts, and they wouldn't come back because they'd had their quota. Mm-hmm. But, but my landlord used to say to me, you never look like you've had a skinful. You always look really well, yet I can't understand it right. And that was then again the badge of honour of, like, God, I'm getting away with it, and actually this is doing me a lot of good. And, like, I was in completely denial of anything to do with my mental health, physical health, weight gain, poor food choices, bad decisions emotionally, you know, all the different things, like domino effect that was happening in my life. And it was like, oh, my God afterwards looking back it's like what was i doing i was on this roller coaster ride that i couldn't get off um and it and it i suppose really it took me years for me to realize and as you say as well back then no one really talked about men's mental health um you just roll your sleeves up and get on with it and i think it was rolling over from that previous generation too wasn't it almost the sort of the maybe the other dads or the elders in the pub were all as that keep calm, carry on type mantra. So it hadn't quite spread on where perhaps now it's maybe passed down a little bit more, isn't it? But it's, I think after hearing your story in the past as well, Dave, it's kind of something I've, I've related to a lot of things that you've gone through in a similar way. Cause I think the paths were quite similar in the early onset. And likewise, my, my health was starting to suffer here. I was putting on a lot of weight and I put on about um, five stone in the space of about six months at one point, I think, cause literally I was just, fueling myself in the takeaway, falling in the takeaway on the way home or picking a few chips out the pan when I was in the pub on shift. And quite quickly, my studies at university began to fall by the wayside when alcohol was kind of more the focus, my sole focus for the day. And of course, my job at the pub was funding that. So I wasn't someone that you know had all these 
you know, parents are paying me to go to university. I was very much working class lad, single parent, uh, mum was a nurse kind of thing. So you're off there. And that was the way to fuel my lifestyle. So basically, that was my priority at the time, rather than the studies, despite being um, academically proficient to, to carry that on. But at this point, yeah, really, it was something that I think the signs were maybe starting from the outside, because as soon as it starts looking quite external, when you've noticed someone that's gone from quite a fit young lad to now looking quite morbidly obese, really, and putting all the drinking away, smoking a pack or two a day. And like you, it was kind of, I was always that almost glazed sort of look. It was never someone that was stumbling about the place, having to get thrown out of the pub or no service. I wasn't an aggressive. I wasn't a loud drunk. I was someone that was a bit sort of sleepy almost. I was a bit the BFG. Yeah. You know, you gradually sort of descend. And there was even some instance where the, the pub I used to go in all the time um, after 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 my shift, which was known as like the bartender's bar because it was open after all the other pubs shut. And for those who've been to York, of course, it's kind of like there's a pub for every day of the week. So it was all the bartenders coming after 11, 12 o'clock to this one little spot. And one time I used to come in and I always fear losing control because to me it was kind of the slow, steady demise is what I enjoyed. So I never fell into the world of sort of drugs, although, you know, I'd sort of dabbled and come across them in my time. I didn't really enjoy that quick hit of drinking, like, you know, a couple of bottles of wine and just shutting off instantly. I liked that slow, steady demise that drinking sort of pints gave me where I just was under control to the point that I slipped off into that nice, happy, ethereal stage, but then falling off the other side and literally being in blackout oblivion. But I'd, I'd hate the losing control aspect. So sometimes I'd go back in the place afterwards and be like, oh, was I okay last night? I'm, re- I'm really sorry if I, if I was you know, Ill, Ill, ill-mannered or ill-behaved. And they went, no, no, you're absolutely fine. Your eyes were shut for the last hour and a half, but you kept saying please and thank you. So we kept serving you. I mean, that maybe shows badly on their side of things. But it, for me, it was always the mannerisms were still there to a degree. So it was kind of just, just drinking yourself away. But, you know, again, they thought you'd just come out for a couple of hours, but you'd been out perhaps now since before before lunchtime as you say it was just a very strange lifestyle that um seems very bizarre looking back on and how was your mental health then well i think throughout this i mean that was again the 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 catalyst for all this really i've been quite poor you know my younger years um i think i initially had maybe had a brief reprise from that with using the substance and as i think you mentioned earlier the word sort of my quota that was always the thing hitting that point where i'd slip off into that nice happy state which by now had really gone into sort of stupid figures, really. I mean, my tolerance was extremely high. Some days I wasn't even reaching that point. I was just literally topping up next day. So wasn't someone that really suffered from the bad hangovers. Um, I, I was literally brushing my teeth with the stuff now when I got up in the morning and keeping a coffee cup behind the bar, you know, working shifts that were sometimes breakfast till close, literally, and that was it, just topping up all the way. So I felt as if really at this point, I wasn't even letting it leave my system. So I wasn't getting to the point of, you know, hangovers or bits or withdrawal because I was just constantly on it. And I guess it went the other side. So what I saw as my medicine early on was now quite quickly becoming more of a poison. And although I still wasn't seeing those signs, it was now that endless cycle that I'm trying to achieve almost that, that ground zero each day where I started off at, but each day I'm starting off lower and lower and having to have maybe five, six, eight, ten pints just to get to that point of actually feeling normal. So it was constantly chasing that now with the tolerance of COVID going on where really I was absolutely, well, it's a depression, isn't it? So I was just taking myself further and further down into that hole and then chasing that high that was now further and further away to achieve. So it was an endless cycle that, again, like the carrot on the stick in front of the donkey, isn't it? You're always chasing it. You never quite get it. Just each day, just repeating that cycle. So at this point, I was really contemplating my own existence again still. Um, alcohol was now starting to really not have the effect that it had in the early days of actually making me feel as if I was 
I was okay and I was coping with my own my own head. And really, I was beginning to feel very alone in the city that I lived in. I mean, I'd, I'd, I didn't. I had a lot of friends in sort of the industry. I mean, my takeaway owners and bartenders. I mean, the signs were maybe there, but around my twenty-first birthday, I had a lot of friends come to visit me from back home. We had a particularly big bender in town, and one by one, they started to go home back to their respective uh, cities. And it just sort of dawned on me really how alone and how solitary I was in this lifestyle because I was. I just, I just went from group to group. I bounced around. I kind of didn't stay in one place. Uh, I, I just you know, would fit in. And again, you'd say you knew people in every sort of little spot and horn. So you'd walk in and crack a conversation going. But stumbling home in the early hours one day after this sort of 21st birthday, um, I, I picked up a payphone to my mum. I don't recall the conversation too much, but was completely off my head and just really felt as if I had no escape anymore. I felt this wasn't keeping me present in this world. Although I didn't really want to be here, I was quite self-destructive. I was trying to keep myself present for other people almost, and I was existing and almost putting myself on ice, if you will, yeah. by keeping myself to that oblivion each day. And I rang up to tell her uh, to tell her goodbye because I felt as if I just couldn't go on any further. And it was it was the beginnings, I suppose, of this realization of the journey I was on. And um, I, I did come back to Cumbria very briefly. I saw some medical help. Again, the alcohol still wasn't an issue at this point. I wasn't seeing that as a problem at all. It was just how I was coping with what I was doing, even though. My consumption figures at this point were, were were extremely high, but that was kind of I was just a big lad and put it away. So it wasn't kind of like you no, know, it's not going to be like him having a couple of pints because I can I can drink more. It's just it's just biology, really. It was it was always always dismissed, but I wasn't willing to change. So after a week of being home, took myself back to York and just carried on this same path of just that constant cycle of drinking to blackout each day for for another another four or five years um, before realization really dawned. I'm so sorry to hear that, mate, that um, when you called over that that news, because I can really feel that. I, I got to a space there that I was really, really drunk uh, and I wanted to end it all. And it, and it was for other people as well. It was like, I want to put them out of the misery of having to worry about me as well. Uh, and luckily I woke up face down on, on the floor with my coat still on, you know. Uh, but it's a terrible place to get to, isn't it? Um so what point did you realize actually things have got to really change here? Well, if that moment there was my 21st, it, it was something that I actually really hated. I hated the fact my, my mask had slipped in a way, the fact I'd allowed people into the real reason behind my, my activities. Um, but it was, it was around sort of 20, it was 25 by the time I really had the sort of the dawning. So by this point, again, I'd, I was highly functioning, so I'd worked myself up through this environment. I was managing the hotel um, that I'd been working in this whole time at this point. It had a major refurbishment uh, during this point, too, from being a very much a spit and sawdust boozer to now quite a nice gastropub with, you know, enlightened rooms on the evening in the centre of York. So it was kind of, I transitioned with that, but was still very much in that same lifestyle. So perhaps I had a nicer, a nicer shirt and tie on now, but my lifestyle was the same and half the punters were still coming in. So you just kind of continued through. And um, and each day again, you, you were known in the face around town. You know, I was a friendly, friendly chap. I was. It was very much in the city centre, so you'd be known around as well. So the signs weren't really there from the outside. And again, this whole point from the from the first days of going through this, having that awakening, maybe thirteen, fourteen, of having that mental shift, it was always about never becoming that burden. So all this was never about putting my issues onto somebody else. But as you said, then with my behaviour and what I was doing now, without me really knowing about about it. The burden was already there. And there's a quote I love about sort of alcohol, about the fact that it, it kind of 
You know, it dissolves finances, it dissolves relationships, but never problems. And for me at the time, it was kind of something that I just thought I was just keeping myself present, just sorting myself out, trying not to worry anybody else about what I was going through by drinking myself each day to blackout. Yet already, you know, my mum's quite strained of how she's thinking. She told me later down the line that she was crying herself to sleep sometimes, thinking that I'd just literally, she'd pass on in later life and I'd be there still on this path and on the street sort of drinking away. You were kind of very close to that point. I was living in the pub now, had no money at all. It all gone down my neck. You know, I was pinching, stealing, you know, whacking tabs up everywhere sort of stuff, blowing through all these credit card debts, inheritance, just constantly trying to get this sort of fixed and having no real avenue for for getting out of this world. But during this point, um, I did find myself in a relationship, someone that I'd always really looked for, always wanted to share life with somebody else, always sort of, you know, share adventures and time, good times and perhaps be that person that ultimately I was in my heart without this this affliction or this addiction now is what it was. But I was already in another relationship at the time, and the two didn't really go hand in hand. So although I worked quite unsociable hours, sort of, again, managing the hotel, she was nine to five, quite regimented Monday to Friday. So I sort of weaved in this lifestyle around hers when I had sort of a day off in between. She'd go to work so I could have a particularly big bender and know I could sleep in a bit in the morning and start again when the booze is reopened. It was kind of one that I felt like I was keeping quite secretive but there were cracks, of course. I mean, you'd sort of turn up quite late each time. You know, she noticed, of course, or smell a drink on you. You've had a drink today, haven't you? Oh, no, 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 no. You have. Oh, yeah, I've had one or two. When I'd had, you know, probably 12 or 15, it was just, you know, constantly just that glazed look. And arguments would start to happen in fractures, which just always forced me straight out the door, back to the pub, to avoid that confrontation, if you will. And on one particular one of these times, heading out after an argument, I went out, um, and I acted unfaithfully to this partner. I mean, it was about a year and a half into the relationship. It was quite a serious relationship. Um, someone that, you know, was very much a major part of my life. And, and rightly so, it was the end of that relationship. And it was something that just caused my whole my whole world to really tumble, completely fractured beneath me, like the foundations just crumbled. Um, really, the thing I'd wanted most in life all this time, before I'd even started drinking, was always that sort of stable relationship, sort of family, loving time. And my own actions had caused this demise. And it really made me almost snap out from that world of the fact that I was I was actually not me anymore. I was mm. compromised. I felt my actual ethics. I mean, I saw myself as an honest, loyal person, you know, who would always go out my way for other people, not be that burden. Yet it's exactly the opposite of how I'm behaving now with this substance. And it was almost like you've just you've been hoodwinked by this substance. It's just kind of taking you on a different path. And you know, I suppose initially to try and win her back, like you do the whole sort of thing, I can change, I can change, I can I can drop all this. And it was literally the 6th of June 2016 was the moment that was almost a complete light switch moment in my life where I remember going to the work the next day, doing the breakfast shift and, and functioning fine. And my boss came to me and said, you don't seem quite right today. And I just absolutely broke down in front of him what had happened. And he said, go take a minute outside to yourself. And that minute was about five hours, I think. My actual my, my colleague came on to take over the afternoon shift. I was out there that long. And he came straight out of a pint glass and said, yeah, get this down here. It'll sort you out. And I just said, I don't drink anymore, John. And he just looked at me and said, you what? I said, I don't drink anymore. And he'd seen me literally, you know, every day for the last maybe like five years into the bar, literally almost a human vacuum clean, anything that was going. Any drink that someone rejected would come my way. The drip trays sometimes were getting topped up and I'd have that sort of thing. I was someone that very much liked 
the artisan craft of certain drinks, but would also drink whatever was on offer. It was kind of just just a constant mix. And from that moment, literally overnight, I don't drink anymore, John. And although perhaps medically really I later discovered not really advisable because the levels I was drinking at the time, I was in excess of 20 pints a day at my worst. It was kind of just ridiculous, really. And then if I didn't reach that quota at night, I'd just top myself up at the top shelf before I went to bed. And and threw my last pack of cigarettes in the bin, vowed to quit drinking from that moment, and decided I could no longer stay in this city and in this environment if I was going to make this change. So I just upsticked. I'd lived there for seven years. I didn't say goodbye to anybody. I obviously lost my girlfriend. I'd left this whole personality that I'd created. I mean, it was kind of me. I was, I, 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 again, that badge of honor, as you say, I was a drinker. That's what I do. I put it away. I know my stuff and I was knowledgeable about the industry as well. I was, I was on that path, but overnight, I'm not doing that anymore. Left my flat, lost my girlfriend and moved back to Cumbria where I was from. And this was the first point that now in 12 years, I came clean with what I've been suffering from all those years from the early days to friends and family. So again, feeling completely vulnerable at rock bottom. I suppose only having two options, really. One was shuffling off this mortal coil, or the other one was trying to pick myself back up from this moment and almost face my wrongs, what I'd done, you know, be accountable for my actions. It was, I suppose, not going to be that burden. It was it was the opposite. I, having that fear of judgment, I suppose, of what was going to come. And it was exactly the opposite of what I received from those friends and family. I mean, I was I appreciate I was very lucky to still have them in my life at that point too. I mean, I'm sure you've come across people, Dave, and maybe even yourself that that path has gone on a bit long, that these, that unconditional love almost wears off at a time and they leave you behind. And I've certainly had ultimatums. I'd had moments of, you know, clashes or looking back what were interventions, but hadn't quite reached that point where they'd cut the rope from me. Um, so this minute that I actually came clean for the first time, the support and the, the, the picking up that came with that, was integral to why I'm able to sort of speak speak about this now, really. That's fantastic, mate. And a couple of points there. Is I love it that you said I don't drink anymore rather than I don't want to drink anymore or I'm going to try and stop. You you made the absolute statement there, I don't drink anymore. Um, and secondly, it's like a confession, isn't it? When, when you come clean, it's a cleansing of the soul, isn't it? It's like I need to come out and and be honest with other people, but it's about being honest with yourself. And there's accountability there. And that's what I did from day one. I said, I don't drink anymore, and I'm going to tell the world because I need to come clean for my sins kind of thing. And, and it really, really helped me um, to move forward, actually, is strip it bare. And I often say on here, it's the role that you played is like in York, one of an actor in York Theatre, right? And you're the main character there. And all of a sudden you hang up your outfit on the hook and go, right, I'm not acting anymore. I'm going to do something else. Exit stage left. Exactly. And you leave in the dark and no one's there to see you go, you know? And you can start again in the true authentic you, which is what you've done. So after that then, what happened? Like. What did you do in the initial stages to get over it all? Well, after the um, the Irish goodbye, as you've put it, it was uh, <laughs> I, I tried to literally throw myself into into fitness and more of an active lifestyle straight away. I mean, I literally by this point I was over twenty two stone. You know, I, I, again, I threw my last pack of cigarettes in the bin that same day. 
tried to stop sort of, um, well, did stop drinking at that moment and had gone from this very lethargic, you know, destructive lifestyle, you know, and healthy eating, no exercise at all, to all of a sudden trying to replace that void in my life, really, with with something else. So, again, I was just trying to, I suppose, you know, show that that I can change moment was more than just words. So it was literally straight away um, pushing myself into fitness. I mean, I spent a bit of time at my auntie's initially because she lived outside of York um, before I went to Cumbria briefly. And I remember taking out her bicycle from the uh, from the garage at the time, which was proper little ladies' bike with a basket on the front and the other bell. And I was there cycling that round the Yorkshire Walls at first. This chap <laughs> just, just trying to get started. And then yeah. when I returned back home, again, it was trying to take my own bike back out of the shed, do some of the old routes I used to do as a kid. And friends began to sort of literally turn up on my doorstep because it was the old sort of my family home, my mum's house, you see. So they all knew where I was. And they came back one by one on the doorstep and said, right, come on, let's go out and do this today or let's go to the gym for this bit. And all activities that didn't involve booze. And obviously, I didn't have a job at this point. I'd just left the city. I was paying off the last of my debts um, in York as well, trying to have what I had. But again, alcohol was just such an integral part of my day daily business. Like literally, the minute I had that first drink, that was kind of everything else off the table. So if I had anything to do in the day, ready to sort of down the bank a little bit, or do a bit of my own personal life, I'd do that first thing, and then I'd fall in the pub, and that was it. The day was done then. So it was kind of <laughs> that could have mm-hmm. been. If that was one of the spoons or something in town, if it was open at 10 o'clock, then that was it. The day started even earlier. But I threw myself into this path. So, again, it was down to the gym. It was biking. But I was also trying not to see alcohol as a taboo. So I didn't – I loved that pub environment. I loved the social aspect of things. So I didn't want it to become something that wasn't something I could ever go again because it was kind of – that was I knew it was a big part of life and there would be events that would go on in the future. If I was going to make this path, I had to be comfortable with those environments as well, which I appreciate is not for everyone at all. Um, but again, I was not crossing the street from the from the you know, the, the bargain booze. I wasn't not going down the the aisle in the supermarket. It was all fine. I was almost pushing myself into these environments. That a quote that I loved at the time as well that said about you know, the more times you sat in the barber's chair, the more likely you are to get a haircut. And I was kind of, I suppose, tempting fate by being in these environments. But I was just going and having a coke or going and having a tonic. And I I did a lot of journaling at the time. Actually, I started doing that, which was something that I'd never have seen myself doing. That my actual my my ex partner. One of the last things she did was buy me a little book and said, just, you know, write down what you're going through. You can get through. She was very selfless considering my actions at the time. And it didn't continue on, but was someone that very much helped me in those early days. But fitness was that big tool. And one particular friend turned to my doorstep one day and said, we're going to go for a hike. Now, at the time, I knew nothing what to expect, though I'd been so close to the Lake District. I mean, I'm literally 20 minutes down the road and I'm in there. You know, sort of coffee and cake in Keswick was probably about as close as I'd come to hiking in the mountains in the past. And uh, I didn't know what to put on. I mean, I didn't have any equipment and, again, didn't have any money. So <clears throat> I literally had been living in borderline rags other than my working clothes um, during that time because just the money went on other things. So I had an old pair of scabby shoes. I mean, they used to just joke. I used to wear these, these cheap trainers all the time, 20 quid I used to keep buying them, wear them, no no grip at all on the soles. <laughs> a pair of swim shorts, I think, and a jumper I'd maybe, uh, you know, wear down the pub on a Friday. And, my friend just looked at me and said, you know, you can't come hiking like that. Look at the state here. <laughs> you can imagine you turning up in Nepal like that, Dave. I mean, they'd probably send you back on the plane, wouldn't they? And um, he drove us into the Lake District and he pulled up uh, um, a local outdoor store, grabbed this pair of boots off the shelf, plonked them on the counter uh, and bought me these boots. And again, it was it was a huge show of sort of faith. I mean, again, I, you know, he knew nothing what was to come. He didn't know I was going to continue this lifestyle or even just throw them in the bin the next day. But he bought me these boots a huge show of faith and support as, as a friend at the time. And 20 minutes later, he pulled up at the base of a mountain called Blencathra, 
in the Lake District. So for those that don't know, one of the higher mountains in the lakes uh, and quite a baptism of fire from literally someone that two weeks ago was literally picking themselves up off the street or on the bar side every night um, and not really doing any exercise in their life. So I'm staring up at this mountaintop, again, banging head from the withdrawal, pining for my ex, you know, I'm, I'm all over the place. You know, all the worries that are coming with it in terms of my finances and my life and my whole personality is kind of just suddenly gone. It's fell beneath me. Who am I anymore? Just existential crisis almost. And basically getting frog marched up this hillside. And I was absolutely blown out my arse, in honesty. <laughs> but one foot in front of the other, pushing on, not knowing, not looking at the clock. I mean, God knows how long it took me, but eventually reaching the top of this mountaintop, barely having a chance to take a breath. And that friend looking at me and saying, right, we're doing Helvellyn next week. Now, Helvellyn was the third highest mountain in the Lake Districts, 950 meters. Again, so it was quite a baptism of fire. It wasn't, it wasn't just like, it's literally just pushing yourself into these paths. So, you know, again, you're still going through all this major change. And a week later, there I am at the base of Helvellyn. Similar story, but a wonderful blue sky day and getting marched again up this stone staircase to the summit top. And, and it began feeling a bit like, you know, a physical manifestation of what I was going through, that sort of uphill struggle, pushing mm-hmm. through the pain not knowing what was to come, but having to have that blind faith really of the next chapter in my journey and reaching the summit top of that mountain that day, I was just blessed with this amazing view with an amazing vista and that this flow of sort of endorphins and dopamine through my body that was a real sense of achievement, but also a really good sensation. Like, like, the, like the sensation that I wanted to get from booze that you'd, you'd always chase. Mm. And at first you might've hit that point of euphoria, but it became further and further away as that tolerance increased. And, you, and I'd never really reached those moments again. It was always, you're always trying to achieve that, that first pint tasted like back in sort of the yesteryear. And this now had that same sensation much better without any of that negativity, with any of that withdrawal. So that physical activity, the mental boost I was getting, it literally felt like a new addiction was being sparked that day in me. And it continued from there. So a week later, it was Scarfell Pike. Within a month, we'd gone down to Snowdon and Snowdon, um, at Snowdon, Snowdonia. We were up to Scotland doing Ben Nevis after about two months. And at this point, I began sort of um, swapping my boots for, for sort of trainers. And a friend sort of said to me, what, do you want to fancy coming for a run next week? And I went, no, this is this is too far now. I'm not becoming a runner. Like, you know, I can't, can't run a bath. <laughs> I just never would have happened. And he said, come on, let's go out. So it was like one, two K around the tarn again, even though I had the mountain fitness now, I was still different kind of muscle group was absolutely exhausted but that 2k became sort of three became five became 10 and at the turn of the year christmas that same friend that took me out hiking suggested do you fancy doing a marathon um next year and again it was just you know i would have absolutely laughed you out of the pub if you'd ever have said any of this would have happened but there i was in may 2017 11 months on from that turnaround that i don't drink anymore john moment and i'm seven stone lighter I'm coming up to a year sober and I just crossed the finish line of this marathon. It was literally 26 pints becoming 26 miles. It was just that's incredible, man. Just crazy and just shows what could really change in a year. I mean, it was bizarre for me, but looking from the outside, from those that perhaps knew me before and during, they must have been like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> it was just a complete right switch moment in my life that just just caused a completely new, new tra- um, transition, a new journey. That's a fantastic story, mate. And Thank you. you're known on Instagram as Fel, the Fell Foodie, right? And that's how I met you. You had your little stove <laughs> and your, 
Yeah, a little bot. I, I always remember you actually said that you use uh, hair wax pots for the ingredients, <laughs> and that's a brilliant idea. Um, and as long as you clean them out properly, obviously. That's right, yeah, we should we should state that. Yeah, the hair wax is no longer inside the. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was brilliant the way you knocked up that lovely uh, meal. Like I think it was like a curry, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And with mm-hmm. all the the ginger and whatever you prepared before, what? When did that all begin for you? Yeah, so during this point, I guess, I mean, I'd always loved my food. I'd always loved cooking from a young age. You know, I'd done little spells in amongst my working years in the kitchens and the pub and the hotels, but was never trained, was never really formally in the kitchen other than when perhaps there was a staff absence in there. But I loved cooking with sort of my grandmother and stuff when I was younger. So I spent a lot of time with her. My mum used to work nights on the infirmary. So I was often put with my grandmother. And being the eldest of sort of seven cousins, I was kind of the one that was put to work, I guess, and whether it was just peeling the spuds or stirring the gravy back then, but loved the sensation that food gave about bringing people around a table to sort of share how their day had gone and that real community feel that food brought. And although that sort of path, you know, lost its way slightly um, during the major drinking days where I wasn't really entertained that aspect, cooking was the one practice and the passion that had always really been there for me. So always loving to watch and learn, asking different chefs different questions, trying to pick up different ingredients and stuff on the way. And when I got around this major turnaround, as well as leaving the drink behind, leaving the, the, the smoking behind, and I think I even gave up sugar in my coffee at the same time, just to be a real sadomasochist, I think. <laughs> I began sort of cooking from scratch as well a bit, sort of with fresh ingredients, because I felt that how I was fueling myself now was very important to how I was going to push myself forward. So you wouldn't expect a car to go 100 miles you know, with bad fuel source. So I was trying to fuel myself well at the same time. And when I got into the hiking side of things, I began initially uh, making up sort of leftovers or meals the night before to pack up in my Tupperware to carry up to the hillside. And I'd be enjoying them on the mountaintops while everyone else was getting the, the meal deal out or a pot noodle or a soggy cling film sandwich. And they'd often be looking quite jealously about what I was eating on the hilltops. And um, at this point, I, I basically, I started a bit of an Instagram page um, called Fell Foodie at the time, which was an anonymous account. I didn't share anything about myself, didn't share any friends, didn't have my name on there. You maybe got the odd, you know, iPhone notification saying this person saved in your contacts has got an Instagram page. But other than that, it was anonymous. And it was just to put pictures of my dinner literally on to not annoy my Facebook friends. That's all it was. You know, not being that person that was sharing what they've cooked every night. And someone on top of the summit joked one day and said, why didn't you get a stove and start cooking from scratch on the hilltop? You know, rather than eating these meals I'd made the night before. So I did exactly that. I bought a stove. Um, initially, I started packing up what I had in the kitchen. Again, like the hiking stuff, I didn't have any equipment. So I bought a stove. So I was just taking pans from the kitchen. I was taking full chopping boards or you know, even ceramic plates with me at times and trying to recreate these dishes I love cooking at home because I found that quite a mindful experience cooking now in this environment that also gave me so much um, for my mental and physical well-being. So it was just trying to merge those two passions. And for those that don't know, we tend to call the hills in, in, the, in the north fells. So it's merging that passion of hiking with food, being a fell foodie with a nice little pseudonym. And again, a bit like the early days, it was still almost hiding behind that mask, if you will. I didn't really appreciate this till a bit later on, but I think I was still hiding behind that, not really too willing to share what I was doing to the world yet. I shared to friends and family, but I was kind of still finding my place. I was now working in an office job. I was more nine to five, a lot more routine. You know, again, was very much on a structure. And on my second year sober in 2018, I decided to share my full story now on this public platform that had already sort of achieved a modest following on there. But like that first moment to friends and family, 
the support, words of encouragement, tales of similarity that I received from people, you know, was immensely humbling and empowering, really. The fact that people had found the outdoors for similar reasons or they'd discovered, you know, different aspects of life to come away from maybe addictions or come away from unhealthier lifestyles. And it really sparked it from there. So from then, a little local um, press article has to do a little piece on me. Then a national magazine got in touch. Um, I then started doing some more regular stuff in the outdoor world. I'd come sort of clean with who I was on there. And it just began to snowball. So initially, it got a bit of interest. And I began sort of cooking up these meals, restaurant-style meals, in the outdoors, on a little camping stove, just to show really that food doesn't have to be the thing we sacrifice when we go outdoors and adventures. And it wasn't kind of something that I'd expect you to do on a big point to point, a big John O'Groats to Land's End. But it was something that it was an aspect I enjoyed, just heading out there for a little small adventure. Yeah. to cook and watch a sunset and have something to do to be mindful and be quite slow and present in nature whilst rushing around to get this um, endorphin hit of hitting the top. So it was just, yeah, a very natural transition, a very organic journey that was never really aimed to become anything else than than, than just my path being shared. Yeah, and I love that because um, I've done Snowdoon and what, and you take, as you say, the, the sandwich in cling film or – the bloody protein bars in your rucksack, you know? And actually, I, I don't even want to talk about protein bars ever again because I had hundreds in the pool. But I love it. But then something else happened uh, with your brand, didn't it? There's certain special lady got involved. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so not non-romantically, but um, I, I, was, I was approached in the end to um, – to, to go on on major on television to um, take out Dame Mary Berry onto the hillside. So it was kind wow. of, sort of an absolutely bonkers moment that you sort of initially think, how did you get this phone number? But didn't say that at the time. But I did say, you know, I, I'm happy to do it, but I'm not going to bake her a cake if that's what you expected. <laughs> and um, time went on a bit further and time came to do the film inside of things. And again, it was, it was all about sort of the story and how I'd turned this round and something that I would never have shared to myself in the mirror was now about to be shared sort of on, you know, national television. It was just a, a bonkers journey, really. And I decided to have a little go at a cake in my spare time on the shore of Windermere, and, and it went quite well. So I um, I posted it on my Instagram page, and um, the producer saw it. I said, yeah, we'd like you to make that on the day, please. <laughs> so there I am taking out the absolute institution that is Dame Mary Berry and, and trying to bake her a cake on a camping stove on, on the hillside. And it was a real bizarre sort of... <laughs> turn really and got an out-of-body experience going is this my life now because again it's still not a long way away from that very dark destructive you know just almost anonymous lifestyle that I was leading before and there I was looking over Blencafra the mountain that started it all on a hillside nearby telling Mary and telling the cameras exactly what had gone on and then preparing to make her these dishes on the hillside so I made her a little pan seared sea bash dish at first um, with sort of a little broad bean pancetta uh, base and then try to bake her a cake or using a little sort of convection oven that sits on top of my camping stove um out in the hills and, and she was very doubtful she didn't think it was going to work none, none of the crew thought it was going to work i had my doubts too in, in honesty and uh <laughs> and at one point it didn't make it onto the final cut but she was stirring the bowl for me with the mixture in there and she hands the bowl back it's probably why i didn't make it onto the final cook because uh, i then <laughs> said i think it needs a bit of um, a bit more liquid mary which was uh, definitely a, a sweat off the brow type moment <laughs> telling Mary how to make a cake. <laughs> but I poured it all into the mixture, cooked this cake, turned it out, and there it was standing proud in a 
she said no sign of a soggy bottom there. So hey. it was a moment, and um, I believe I believe the first time she's been made a cake outdoors. So a very proud moment to share that to, to spend the day with someone like that, and really to amplify that story, you know, onto a national platform. Because at this point, it was beginning to feel quite purposeful for me as well. I felt as if I'd struggled with my purpose in life for quite a while, and what my presence was here, and, and really you know, not wanting to be present. And I think now trying to share what I've been through to try and make my struggles all the more worthwhile by hopefully telling somebody else a tale of similarity or a tale mm. of maybe redemption was very much feeling like something that I wanted to be that that messenger for. So, yeah, an extremely proud moment and one that will be, uh, be very hard to top, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and we all want to know, like, because I've worked with Peter Andre for years, right? Yeah, yeah. And everyone always says to me, what's he like in real life? And I always joke, he's absolutely bloody awful. But <laughs> he is just the nicest, loveliest man you'll ever meet. Genuine. You know, I've been in some really stressful situations with him on the TV show and he's just kept his calm. He's been really kind. So Mary Berry, is she as lovely as? Yeah, of course she is. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. was. Yeah, they said treat her like your grandmother, and that's exactly how it felt really on the day. Um, we spent a lot of time off the cameras, you know, been having a little chat. And even at the end, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you all have come across it too, I'm sure, but sometimes you, you have these interactions with people off the television and things, and then off the camera it's kind of they disappear off and they, yeah. they get what they want and off they go. But at the end of the day, I saw her walk off and I thought, that's it now, she's gone. But someone came over and said, Mary's going now. She'd like to say goodbye. So I went over and at one-on-one, she was there having a discussion, saying, I've had a wonderful day. I love you in the latest trick. Thank you for being here and sharing your story. And gave me a copy of her book that was all signed, of a lovely message in there. And oh, lovely. And it was just, you know, very old school manners sort of thing, really, that I think yeah. they move away from that way. But she was definitely from that, you know, that previous class that just a wonderful, wonderful experience and one that, yeah, I wouldn't hear a bad word. She was just a fantastic lady to be with. And, um, yeah, it first felt very personal. That's lovely, mate. <clears throat> so what you're doing now, when I met you, you did this presentation at the Be Sober event, and that was absolutely wonderful. When everyone was made up about that, uh, it was really different, actually. You know, cooking on a gas stove in a room <laughs> full of women. You know, when I did my talk there, it's like I got up and looked out, and it's like, Jesus Christ. It was like <laughs> the old school comedian in a northern comedy club. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how's this going to go down well? But they're a lovely, lovely crowd. Is that what you do now? Like, what, what, where are you now in your life with Fell Foodie? Yeah. So it just began to sort of snowball further and further, really, and had wonderful opportunities coming my way that I've just really embraced and said yes to. And, Alongside my previous job, it got to the point that I was getting, I suppose, too much requests to do various um, talks and festivals and that I decided to try and go freelance with this. And it's what I do full time now. I mean, God knows how you make a living as an outdoor cook. I'm still trying to work that one out. But I'm, um, I'm basically heading around again, a lot of festivals, expeditions, expos, schools, universities, talking about my journey, but also bringing in the outdoor cooking elements. So I do a lot of work with a lot of the outdoor brands now. There might be Duke of Edinburgh bits, working with inner city schools as well as some sponsored bits and social media stuff through brands there. So on the day with yourself at that Be Sober event, again, it was just coming to, I suppose, share my tale with alcohol, but also with the different spin that what I do now, it's a very, I suppose, different path that it's taken me on. And I mean, as you say, I think it was myself, you and uh, William Porter, wasn't it? About the only blokes in the room, I think. <laughs> yeah. Weekend, but it was, um, yeah, a bizarre path that I didn't, I never really expected. It's never been an aim to become a career or a business. It was just me sharing my story, but these days now, you know, it's over seven years sobriety now. 
very different life. You know, at one point I had lost about seven stone. I think I packed about three of that back on in lockdown, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's a few of us that have done similar. But again, it's just a very different path and one that really I just embrace each day as it comes. Again, that sort of mantra of one day at a time. It's very much how I take my life these days. Mm. And also we talked about something very special that I want to mention now is that um, you've got a book. Is it a, a cooking, a cookery book? <laughs> it, it is, yeah. A, a bit of a childhood dream coming to fruition, really. Again, and the one that I wouldn't have expected with the journey that I've been on, but very recently published um, at my debut cookbook. There's got a bit of my story in there as well, in sort of introduction, but mainly 85 recipes, all designed around cooking on adventures, all around camp stoves or cooking in the motorhomes or if you're off caravanning. Again, right back to the start, I suppose that journey that we mentioned, isn't it? It's come full circle and cooking away and how we sort of treat food on the way. So not always having to have those quick dehydrated meals. They, of course, have their place on expeditions. I'm sure you've had a few of those out in the uh, the altitude that you're in. But yeah. sometimes on smaller journeys, heading to the coast, you know, going for a little swim somewhere, heading on a dog walk with a nice sort of food flask packed with a nice stew. Yeah. Recipes all designed around that sort of adventure style of things. Um, and one that I'm very proud yeah, to have put together. So, yeah, it feels like a quite a quite a full turnaround, really, a full circle and a, and a very new world that's been opened up. Well, I think from the beginning, um, it didn't take long like me to to prove how you can turn your life around so quickly by removing that that toxic substance. You know, I, I did three massive bike rides within six months of giving up booze. Uh, and I got on the bike and the old wheels like made the noise, the straining noise of like Jesus Christ, is Shrek just got on the saddle? Do you know what I mean? But I did the London to Portsmouth, London to Brighton, and London to Paris within a few months of giving up booze. I lost two stone, I think. Um, everything improved in my life. You know, um, I looked so much better. My mental health improved. And this is such a good conversation to have with people who's contemplating taking a break from alcohol and you're proof of that as well how you've turned your life around as a young man as well you know and and i think i've really enjoyed the last hour hearing your story um you tell it so well and i was thinking about the cookery book as well that you could use that for people who live on their own and they haven't got massive time to knock up a, a tasty meal you know, because when I saw you cook what you did, it didn't take long at all. It was a few minutes, and the end result was fantastic. So people could buy your book for that as well. You know, like Jamie Oliver's got the 15-minute meals and whatever. There's a niche there for your book as well. So there's a massive plug there, mate. Uh, <laughs> but I believe in you, and I've seen the book, and it's fantastic. Where can people get it? Well, I suppose it's that line, isn't it? All good bookstores, I guess. It's, um, yeah, it's out there. So all the major ones. So by the publisher itself, Vertebrae Publishing. Um, I believe it's in Waterstones, WH Smith, all the likes of those, uh, in Amazon. So, um, yeah, just, just crazy really seeing it on those shelves because it's only really been, uh, not long since it's come out. So I'm still coming to terms with it, I think, really. But yeah, as you say, there's recipes for all sorts in there. I expect most people to probably do them at home rather than on the hilltop like me, but perhaps sometimes there'll be ones that get enjoyed on the campsite or, on little adventures, but yeah, quite a variation from one pot dishes to breakfast desserts and some more, uh, well, I've dubbed some it special, some more pan juggling recipes on there, like the curry that I made for you. Yeah, lovely. And is there a cake in there? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I've not put a cake in this one, no. I've, I've tried to keep it a bit simpler, but perhaps, uh, perhaps next time. Yeah, well, look, Harrison, I'm really, really grateful you joined me and thank you for telling us all your story. 
I think you're brilliant, mate. All the best with the book, and hopefully we'll catch up soon. I hope so. I think I owe you a meal on the fells day, don't I, sir? Yeah, let's do it. Sorted. <laughs> All right, mate. Look after yourself. Thanks, Sam. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.